0: From the campuses of East Tennessee, State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. The topic today is our mother, our Mother Earth. Mother Earth is having some struggles the late thomas berry summarized our situation in his book the great work he said this about our fossil fuel addicted consumer society the ideal is to take the greatest possible amount of natural resources process these resources put them through the consumer economy as quickly as possible then onto the waste heap this we consider as progress even though the immense accumulation of junk is overwhelming the landscape saturating the skies and filling the oceans. Thomas Berry from the great work he wrote that in 1999. Climate change is the grim reaper, the angel of death whom we have unleashed. Extracting non-renewable resources and putting their waste products into the atmosphere and into our oceans is not a plan for the future. Yet, our economy is based on it. All the powers, all the gods of industry and finance spend all they have to keep this consumer economy functioning. The problem is so immense, so intransigent, that we have no idea how to free ourselves from this destructive pattern. But there are prophets among us, telling us that there is another way, and it is time for us to stand up for our Mother Earth. My guest is Bill McKibben, author of Oil and Honey, The Education of an Unlikely Activist, now in paperback, and the founder of 350.org. Bill McKibben, welcome to Religion for Life.
1: Very good to be with you.
0: I love this book. I I love the blending of the stories of your activism uh, woven with the story of your neighbor Kirk, uh, the beekeeper in Vermont. Uh, Tell us how this book came to be, uh, the time period it covers, and the title, Oil and Honey.
1: Well, the book was in a um, busy period of my life when I was sort of working pretty much full-time as a volunteer on this uh, activism and organizing. and, And So for a while, writing, which is my trade, took a bit of a backseat, and I think this was pretty much the only kind of book I could have written in that stretch of time. Um, When I was home in Vermont, I was recuperating by spending time with my neighbor Kirk and learning the bee business a little bit, and the rest of the time I was out on the road, and those are the the two focuses of the book. Uh, And... The, kind of, the title that I was going to use before oil and honey was um, Home and Away um, because that's in a little bit what it's about. I, I'd like to stay at home and just work in my beautiful part of the world, Vermont to build a, a stronger, more resilient community and economy and things but because we're faced with this enormous dilemma, crisis of climate change, I've got to be out on the The road a lot, um, far more than I want to. Um, um, And uh, it's because if we don't quickly solve it, none of the places that we love are going to work very well in the future.
0: You write about uh, moving from a writer to and educator to activist, and and the personal challenge uh, that that has been for you. Uh, and yet, you moved out of your comfort zone to become a leader in this global movement. Um, in telling this story, have you been able to encourage others to move out of their comfort zones?
1: The hope is, and what's interesting about this movement that's building around climate change is, it doesn't really have leaders in the way that we're used to thinking of movement. There is no Barton, Luther, Tang, or any of it. Um, it's much more decentralized, spread out, which is a good thing. In the fossil fuel industry, our adversary is spread out all over the world, so it's good to be able to take them on everywhere. And the vision that we have for the future is very different. It's of a, it's of a world with, you know, a million solar panels on a million roofs all interconnected, providing our power. And that's the kind of movement we're building to get there. Um, So I think that uh, we see every day more and more and more people becoming, um, I don't know, leaders might not even be the right word for us, just participants in this uh, just burgeoning movement.
0: Well, now, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, you might be less active right now than you were during the time period of of oil and honey. Uh, What do you, or or, or are you, and what do you do now to re-energize yourself or pace yourself?
1: Well, we're pretty busy right now. We're getting ready for a huge march in New York City in late September. The UN has summoned world leaders there to talk about climate change. And since we think world leaders have done a pretty poor job, they mostly have, over the years, have just talked, not acted. Uh, we're going to go there, too, by the tens and hundreds of thousands uh, to demand finally some real action that
0: and that's called the uh, the People's Climate March in, in New York City, September 21st. Uh, what is? Tell us a little bit more about the importance of this event. You know, you'll remember
1: five or six years ago, there was this big UN conference in Copenhagen that was supposed to do something about climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the script had come from Hollywood, you know, it would have been the point where humanity comes together, understands that uh, it has to take joint action and... and, and, and Quite this great fight together, and it would have been a big, inspiring moment. In the event, nothing like that happened. Uh, no country, including the U.S., was willing to make significant uh, concessions because the power of the fossil fuel industry was so great. We're facing the next Copenhagen meeting next year, December of 2015. This time it'll be in Paris, the next great world summit on this. And the head of the U.N., Ban Ki-moon, I think said, I think, correctly, that unless we start getting some uh, plans, concessions, commitments on the board from these countries now, uh, that one will be a failure, too. That's why he's asked them all to come to New York in a kind of pre-negotiation. Um, and that's why civil society uh, uh, will be there, too. All the people from all the different from environmental and social justice and and labor and human rights groups that all understand that the climate crisis is the great crisis of our time, they'll be there um, uh, trying to make our joint voice heard.
0: How many people do you hope uh, will be there in New York City?
1: Oh, the hope is that there'll be, um, I think the, the biggest demonstrations and rallies ever about climate change in the world were 50,000 people or so and, I hope we double that
0: anyway. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Bill McKibben. He's the founder of 350.org and the author of Oil and Honey, The Education of an Unlikely Activist, uh, now out in paperback. Uh, Your book takes us through two big movements. First, the the first to stop uh, the Keystone Pipeline, and then the Do the Math campaign, and then of course on to fossil fuel divestment. Uh, But first, tell us about uh, 350.org. For anyone who might not yet heard of this, uh, what is the significance of the number 350? Well,
1: it's a very good question. 350 is the most important number in the world, maybe, but no one knew it until... Or seven years ago, when the leading climate scientists on the planet at NASA put to- together a series of studies demonstrating that 350 parts per million carbon dioxide was the most we could safely have in the atmosphere if we didn't want to overheat everything. In fact, what they said was at concentrations above 350 parts per million CO2, we can't have a planet similar to the one on which human civilization developed to which life on Earth is adapted. Now, that's strong language for scientists to use, and it's stronger still when you know that wherever you're listening today, this spring we topped 400 parts per million, and we're going up about two parts per million per year as we continue as a planet to burn ever more coal and gas and oil. And that's the nature of the crisis, and the number that defines it are already too high. That's why we see rapid melt in the Arctic and acidification of the world's oceans and erratic and dangerous weather and so on and so forth.
0: And, so, and you just said that we are now at 400 and climbing. Is it possible for that number ever to go down or if we just now need to adapt and stop where we are now?
1: No, no it, it, it happily would go down if we, if we stopped burning fossil fuel and made the relatively easy switch to renewable energy. Uh, oceans and forests would begin absorbing some of that uh, CO2 immediately. And by centuries end, if we were lucky, we'd be back below 350 parts per million. Unfortunately, given the great power of the fossil fuel industry, we're headed in the other direction. And by um, the latter part of the century on our kind of current trajectories, the atmosphere will be 6 or 700 parts per million CO2, and the temperature will have risen Seven, eight, nine degrees Fahrenheit, and and the result will be um, the result will be by far the biggest and worst
0: thing that it's ever done. Now, in, uh, back to your book, uh, Oil and, and Honey. Uh, you write uh, about uh, the demonstrations, uh, about going to jail yourself, about others going to jail, uh, and and, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating story about the pipeline. What was it that convinced President Obama to delay uh, in 2011 on approving Keystone?
1: I think what convinced him to delay was the rise of the first really great people's movement in resistance to a fossil fuel project in this country. Uh, more people went to jail with civil disobedience around the Keystone Pipeline than about any issue of any kind anywhere in the U.S. Uh, for the last 30 years. You know, since the heyday of the civil rights and anti-war movement, um, it was a tremendously dignified uprising that brought people from every part of the country, but led by Native Americans whose land was being destroyed, and led by farmers and ranchers across the heartland, places like Nebraska. Um, It was beautiful to watch, and uh, I don't know how the law came out, but everyone told us we had no chance at all against the the rich people who wanted to build that pipeline. Um, We've kept them at bay for four years, and that's kept 900,000 barrels of oil a day, in the ground and, and that's that's done something anyway to help um help in the fight against climate change well worth the uh, few days in jail it cost me
0: is there still a, a chance to stop the pipeline from being built uh, do you have an idea where we are with that and and, and what's the importance of stopping it
1: well the president uh, will decide that He's now put it off until after the next election sometime in next winter um, uh, the importance of it is twofold. One, the tar sands of Alberta, where this pipeline would come from, is one of the six or seven great concentrations of carbon left on the Earth. And if we dig it up and build it, if they dig it up and burn it, as um, NASA's James Hansen says, uh, it'll be game over for the climate. So it's a very big deal. Would also be a big deal to do the right thing. If President Obama said, No, I'm not going to build this, it would mark the first time that any world leader had said, Here's a big project we're not going to do because of its effect on the climate. And that would be significant.
0: And of course, the backstory to all of this, or the foreground story, is, is not just a, a, a pipeline itself, but the whole argument about carbon. And, and those three other numbers caught my attention in your book when you talked about two, uh, 565. And 2,795. Can you explain those three numbers?
1: Absolutely. Scientists have told us that if we raise the temperature more than 2 degrees centigrade, about 4 degrees, 3.5 degrees Celsius, 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, anything above that will wreck the planet. Uh, It's a very conservative number. We're already raised the temperature only 1 degree Celsius, and that's enough to melt the Arctic. So we're pretty foolish to find out what two degrees will do, but I'm afraid we're going to find out even if we do pretty much everything right from here on in. To keep below that two degrees, scientists tell us we can burn roughly 500, 500 gigatons, 500 billion tons more carbon, um, which is not sound like a small number. It's actually a large number. The trouble is that the fossil fuel industry already has
0: reserves
1: of coal and gas and oil identified and that they've told their shareholders that they'll burn, it's about six times as large as that number, uh, about 2,800 billion tons. That's what their stock price is based on. Think. So if they carry out their business plan, the planet will tank. Uh, there's really no big mystery or doubt about it. And that's why an increasing number of um, moral Morally minded institutions are beginning to break their ties to the fossil fuel industry and divest uh, those holdings. The United Church of Christ a year ago was one of the very first to do so. Uh, this summer, the World Council of Churches, uh, the main body for about 590 million Christians, uh, made the same announcement that they would divest. we have seen uh, the first big Catholic college to do so. Uh, uh, just about a month ago, at the University of Dayton in Ohio, um, an enormous endowment. We've seen a lot of other universities things do the same thing, and a lot of churches uh, around the world. And really, the leading spokesman for all of this probably has been Desmond Tutu, uh, the Anglican former Anglican Archbishop of South Africa, Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, who's Reiterated that this is the next great cause after the divestment of 25 years ago that helped bring down apartheid in South Africa. This is the next great moment for this
0: tactic to be put to use. You know, this summer, I was uh, a commissioner to the Presbyterian Church General Assembly, and the issue of uh, divestment uh, came up there. And uh, young adults, the young adult advisory delegates, we, we call them college students for the most part, rose in mass. I mean, five to a microphone all along the way. It was the more important to them than any other issue that we faced uh, at the General Assembly. And, and the old folks, I'm sorry to say, drug their feet, and, and I think we kicked the can. Um, but what's that saying regarding the younger adults uh, getting the crisis and older people not?
1: So let's, let's think about what it says in two ways. One, one, what does it say about young people? These people are going to have to be on the planet for another 70 years. i you will know, be dead in 20 years. They'll all miss the worst of climate change, but it'll be coming to its absolute height right in the middle of their prime of their lives. They understand that. They understand what a horrible thing our generations are doing to them. Um, um, and that's why young people around the world are leading this fight, what does it say about old people and what does it say about our churches that some of them are so conservative and so slow and so unwilling to listen to young people? Um, I think it helps explain a lot about why uh, many of those denominations are starting to wither. Um, um, It's hard to explain to young people why they should keep their faith in institutions that don't listen to them about the issues that are going to affect
0: them above all. Bill McKibben, my guest on Religion for Life, author of Oil and Honey, the education of an unlikely activist and the founder of 350.org. And this is a spiritual battle, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about fossil fuel companies who will destroy the planet to get that carbon out of Earth. Um, the fossil fuel extraction industry will kill us. Uh, this is not just a political thing or an economic thing. In, in a sense, it's a spiritual thing, a battle for the soul of humanity and, and other Earthlings. That, that, that's what I get from reading your book. Am I saying it too strongly?
1: Well, I think one way to think about it is, um, you know, everybody knows that human beings, our species is gifted at building things, doing things, We can do amazing things when we sit online to it. The question is whether we're also good at restraining ourselves. Um, Uh We are the one animal that has that power. We're the one animal that can decide not to do something that we're capable of doing, really. Uh, But we don't exercise that very often, even though maybe it's the the power that uh, religious leaders at least as far back as the Buddha and certainly above all the Christ of the Gospels um, has uh, tried to inculcate in us um, um, to to not do things that that infringe on others. Um, This is the most classic case of the simplest religious precept of all, the golden rule. Uh, uh, We're doing things that Will make life impossible for poor people around the world, for future generations as far into the future as we can even begin to imagine, and for every other species on Earth, uh, all the flora and fauna that those of us who believe in in, in our Creator God uh, believe that that God asked us to take care of, um, and we're doing about as poor a job of that as it is possible to imagine.
0: Uh, you write in your book that uh, we're, we're almost reversing the creation story of Genesis.
1: Uh, it's sort of almost a decreation. Just go down the list, you know. The great creatures of the ocean, the ones that we haven't, the whales that we haven't hunted out, were now, uh, even this week, uh, we approved, the Obama administration approved an immense amount of new oil exploration off the East Coast. They'll be firing sonic cannons to find more oil deposits. Remember, we already have five times as much of this stuff as it's safe to burn. But they will be um, hunting for more, and in ways that wreck, uh, kill, and destroy the hearing system of these exquisitely evolved creatures. Uh, the oceans themselves become ever more acid as the uh, chemistry changes as they absorb carbon from the atmosphere. The coral reef scientists say that should wipe out most of the world's coral reefs by mid-century. Uh, you know, taking out a whole corner of God's brain, one of the most beautiful, uh, beautiful corners of creation that there ever was. Um, It's just an onslaught. We studied this week in Science Magazine um, showing that the total number of invertebrates on this planet, insects, worms, and all the other invertebrates, the total number of them seems to have dropped 45% in the course of the last 40 years. Not the number of species, the number of individual insects. I was sort of thinking to myself, is that possible? And then I thought, you know, when I was a boy and you'd drive down the road, the windshield would often be splattered with bugs. And It's actually been a long time in most places that that happened to me. Um, um, it's unbelievable what we're managing to do, and it. Can only really be thought of in biblical terms almost. Is there a decreation of this gorgeous planet that we've been asked to exercise dominion over?
0: And, of course, we're, we're facing a lot of weather uh, anomalies. Uh, just uh, We're recording this program at the end of July, and just a couple of days ago, a tornado swept through uh, where we live, which is very unusual. Um, I, I, on the news uh, station, uh, had a picture of a man holding a hailstone the size of a softball, and that is just one little anecdote of many kinds of changes that we're experiencing with climate change right now. That's
1: right, and this sort of change is someplace around the world every. Day now, we're setting a new record for the most intense rainfall, the highest temperature, the deepest drought, the biggest fire. Um, uh, that's what happens when you pour all that extra carbon into the atmosphere and upset the balances that have. I mean, the most important thing that's happened in the lives of anyone listening to this show is that we have managed to take our planet out of the hollow. Out of the 10,000 year period of benign climatic stability that underwrote the rise of human civilization. And in our arrogance and hubris, we're managing to create a, a new world, uh, a, a new era, one that the scientists call the Anthropocene, an era dominated by man. And that domination is proving uh, our undoing in many, many ways.
0: I asked my uh, Facebook friends for questions to ask you, and I received a couple that had to do with why is climate change denial so popular? And another one kind of related to it, does the fossil fuel industry actually recognize that climate change is for real, and are they making plans to adapt their own industry while they simultaneously lobby to deny the existence of climate change? Yes,
1: the second one's a great, particularly great question, Um, Yes, the fossil fuel industry is some of the best scientists on Earth. They know exactly what's going on. Uh, for instance, as they've raised the temperature enough to melt the Arctic, they've been lining up to get permits to go drill where they couldn't get to before. Mm. Uh, there have been a series of reports out of Australia, the biggest coal mining country in the world. Uh, they're building new ports there to handle the coal ships, and the companies building them are building them to make sure they allow for four or five feet of sea level rise in the course of the century, they know exactly what they're doing, and yet they do it anyway. And and that's because they're addicted to the high level of profit that's made them the most. Uh, Exxon made more money last year than any company in the history of money. Um, you know that's wow. what they're addicted to. It's not that we're addicted to fossil fuel. Most of us would be just as happy if our power came from a solar panel when we switched on the light. You know. But Exxon's addicted to that kind of money. And in our political system, when you're that rich, you're able to buy a lot more influence than you deserve.
0: Um, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to take us back to your friend Kirk, uh, the uh, the one who, who runs the Beehive, and, and talk about the significance of, of his style of life for us.
1: Well, Kirk is a wonderful example of the world that we could be building. Far more localized, um, far more responsible Uh, one that really works in cooperation with the world around us. He was the first chemical-free apiarist beekeeper in the country. And as a result, his hives have weathered these horrible collapses, things that are killing off bees at an incredible rate. um, He lives a wonderful life and does really important work. And so it's uh, a reminder of what we could be doing on so many fronts. I think we're poised to have a much more beautiful human economy and human community uh, in the years ahead. You know, the Internet allows us to stay very much close to home in our lives, but still have a window open into the rest of the world. We know now of the things like local food, and and we have this promise of local energy from the sun and the wind. We could be building far stronger and more interdependent and less, alienated and alone, uh, individ- hyper-individualized communities and lives. The thing that will get in the way of that, the thing that will wreck Kirk's business and every other food farmer and everybody else trying to be a good steward, the thing that will wreck it is the uh, power of climate change. So we have to address that, slow it down, even as we build these beautiful local economies, close to all um, I admire Kirk enormously, and I wish that um, I could just stay at home and do the same kind of thing all the time. Um, My destiny for the moment seems to be um, to be more on the road, uh, trying to head off the the, the other set of problems. But, boy, um, uh, it's very good for me to know that Kirk's back there with the bees, hard at work every day.
0: Bill McKibben, uh, founder of 350.org and author of Oil and Honey. The Education of an Unlikely Activist. Thank you on behalf of Planet Earth and all of us Earthlings for your work and for this book. God bless. Take care. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. For more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee and WEHCFM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.